welcome to Hey Look Listen, a podcast where between one and four aging nerds sit around about twice a month and ramble on about their favorite video games. I'm Kevin O'Carroll. I'm joined by my erstwhile companion, Hey Look Listen co-founder and uh, founding father, Liam Sheehan. Liam, how are you doing, mate? Hi. Am I specifically the, the founding father and then like maybe Morrissey is the founding mother, Owen is the cantankerous founding uncle? I think, does that, yeah, I was, I was thinking Owen is more sort of a Bart kind of character. He's Bart, he's the son. Fair enough. Yeah, well, I mean, Marcy is obviously Marge. <laughs> obviously. Of course, how could I get that wrong? Let me, who am I then? I think that makes you Homer. I haven't really oh, yeah, thought yeah, yeah. this through, but... I was I think... literally just thinking that then, I was like, but that's all the characters. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, the main one. The main Simpson. I remember him now. Yeah. Um, well, we have a great topic lined up for you guys today. Um okay uh we're going to talk about openings the sort of the beginnings of video games look at a few that work a few that don't and take it from there now in line with that topic the theme of openings and openings that maybe don't work i've rambled on for a bit so let's do our usual check-in uh beforehand liam what are you playing at the moment so i had all these master plans for the the latter chunk of um 2023 uh i was playing um sea of stars Mm-hmm. I was Me really too. enjoying it. And my plan was, you know, jump on board the hype train that is Baldur's Gate 3. Everyone and their grandmother seems to be playing that at the moment. Yep. That was my plan. Uh, I'm bereft of time a little bit, but I was like, I was like, you know, I'm loving everything I see, but I want to play that. But anyway, long story short, I haven't started that game. I'm not sure when I will now, because what happened is mm-hmm. a trailer for Final Fantasy VII Rebirth came out. Oh, yes. And I was like, oh, that's just like sparked the thing in my brain now. And now all I can think about is Final Fantasy VII. So I'm actually currently replaying the Final Fantasy VII remake for the yeah. first time since 2020, actually. It's weird. It's weird that I haven't played it since 2020 because I've talked about it multiple times on this podcast. Yeah. Uh, so it's the first replay. It's my first ever replay. Yeah. Okay. So check it out. And I'm enjoying it a lot. Like the things that I love about it, I still absolutely adore. It's just like, you know, there's so many things to be impressed by, by modern technology and graphics and, you know, anything that gaming is doing, you know, VR and all that, and just what we're able to do with it, you know. But mm-hmm. 7 Remake remains the benchmark of just wow for me yeah. because it's this recreation of something that I absolutely adored as a child. And that PS1 Final Fantasy Seven is just so ingrained in me. It's so important to me that replaying it again, I was just reminded, I'm like, this is a video game. This is an interactive video game. I'm wandering around in this world and I'm still incredibly appreciative of that. When I get to, when I get off the train in Sector Seven in Midgar slums and I'm looking around and I'm panning the camera around, I'm just like, no, I'd like child me wouldn't believe this shit, and I'm still allowing myself to be kind of you know amazed by that. It's it's still the pinnacle of that. I'm seeing more cracks in the game than I did in my first play. I'm saying things I don't quite like because yeah. the first time you're playing it, you were just, I was just like, oh, this is my childhood recreated. I can't see any wrong, and now you know. You know, it's three years later, so I'm a little bit more critical. But honestly, the things that I love about it are completely overshadowing uh, the things that I don't think I'm the biggest fan of. Just a lot of stuff they added in hindsight. Now that you're playing it again, I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, it's cool that we get more time with, you know, Jesse and the other members of Avalanche. But Jesse and the other members of Avalanche are kind of crap. <laughs> yeah. You know, and well, Jesse's very thirsty. That's that's a character trait, isn't it? Yeah, it's, I don't know. A lot of her dialogue is really awkward, and I was like, I, I, that's her like her entire character. But yeah. I was for a bit. I was, I was playing, it and I was like, I know it's not Shakespeare, but I was like, is like, you know, the writing a little bit more awkward um, than I thought in this game, and it is sometimes. But then mm. like Aerith came into it, and honestly, I still think she's like the best like interpretation of of the characters. Like the 
the banter between her and Cloud, like him kind of like his defenses subtly, subtly like lowering, and him, it's just good stuff. It's a good yeah. recreation of the kind of very, you know, minor kind of storytelling that would be in the original game in comparison. So, but I did kept, I kept before I played it, I was like, I'm going to do this right. I'm going to do Final Fantasy VII. I'm going to get in a big Final Fantasy VII mood and do it correctly. And I played a game I'd never played before, which is the Final Fantasy VII prequel, Crisis Core. Yes. And I thought it wasn't very good. Oh, no. I've never played it. So I've kind of been operating on the illusion. It's kind of one of these things that I've I've always felt that I missed out on and that I had always heard it was good, but never got around to playing it. So you're saying it's not up to much? Uh, it, it does. In hindsight, it does come from what I consider the dog shit era of Square Enix. Yeah. Look, I'll meet people halfway on Kingdom Hearts and, and you know whatever that was doing at the time. But like... We are kind of circling the other compilation of Final Fantasy VII games, you know, Advent Children and stuff like that. Final Fantasy XIII was kind of around. And it was a PSP game at the time. They, they gave it a big, very, very impressive, shiny new remake on the PS5, which I was very impressed with. But yeah. look, the story is dog shit. <laughs> it's so bad. All the added new characters, because it's a, it's, a, it's a recreation of a story we know. Any Final Fantasy VII fan knows this story. It's it's a character called Zack, who has a kind of a, a Boba Fett-esque kind of status within final fantasy 7 or at least he originally did yeah because he's this very 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 minor character in final fantasy 7 but very very important to the lore so that kind of made him super popular over time and kind of almost mystical you know so he yeah. it, it is it's the kind of correct thing to make a prequel about this character and expand him and i will say the one of the best things about the game is the character of zach okay so he's he using a kind of a final fantasy comparison kev i'd say he's very like zidane from nine in the okay. sense that he's he's kind of this bubbly ball of energy who kind of you know pulls people into his orbit with just his sheer niceness yeah that's his character and then they tell they tell an elongated version of his backstory in final fantasy 7 whenever it, it dives into final fantasy 7 stuff like we meet cloud we meet sephiroth or we go to familiar locations from flashbacks in final fantasy 7 i'm like yeah this is great but they didn't have the confidence or the ability to make a whole game out of that yeah so they added this whole other bit of business and every new character is shite all the dialogue is awful. It has... Uh, have we ever done our favourite and least favourite villain? We did he- our favourite and least favourite main characters on the show, didn't we? We did. You did favourite protagonists, so I wasn't on yeah. that episode. You were done that no, we, we haven't done villains yet. Uh, put, that, put, that one, put that one down somewhere. Keep that because my least favourite villain in any video game I've ever played might be in Crisis Core Final Fantasy VII. Okay. On, ironically. Say no more. That's future content. Keep that in the back. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I would like to talk about the game further down the line because I am in a big Final Fantasy VII mood so I can maybe see myself talking about it. But for now, Kev, I'll say... If you get, if you manage to get to where I am, and before Rebirth is coming out, and you're in a big Final Fantasy VII, yeah, you know, and you just want to like absorb, it's worth playing. The combat okay. is good, even if the system, the combat systems aren't very good. The story's bad, but the main character is good, so it's kind of a give and take. The ending's very good, yeah. but you know the ending because you played Final Fantasy VII. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's if it shows up on Game Pass or PS Plus before yeah. the new one comes out, I'll give it a spin. Based on that recommendation, I don't see myself throwing sixty bucks at it or whatever it is. So. It's, it was forty. It was forty on sale, and I even felt a bit burnt by that after finish. But yeah. I will say, the blow was softened by just how much of a Final Fantasy VII mood I'm in at the moment because of the new game coming out. So I actually think I'm too kind to it. Yeah. So I would take what I just said there, Kev, and actually, you know, double that in your head. It's even worse than what I'm saying because I'm in such okay. a big Final Fantasy VII mood. I'm being actually nicer than it deserves. I think I wasn't very impressed by it, uh, which is shocking because it is the one that you I have to hear is quite loved from the Final Fantasy VII yeah. games. And uh, I can see why people love Cloud. I saw a poll that was done um, a couple of years ago, Kev, in Japan, and Zach was voted the most popular Final Fantasy character of all time. So just, that's how just 
not Final Fantasy VII, like Final no. Fantasy across the board. Across the board in Japan. So that's how popular this character Christ. is. And I, th- I think a lot of people, because they love that character so much, I think they give the, and they give the game maybe more credit than it deserves. I think good main character and good ending. I think that's what people like think of when they think of that game. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, enough about that. What are you playing, my friend? So I haven't recorded an episode with you guys in a while now. <laughs> it actually has been, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, the last one I was on, we recorded early. And then you had that uh, episode with CJ, which is great, by the way. If anyone hasn't yeah, checked that yeah, out, yeah, you should go fun. back and listen to it. Yeah. Um, so I've actually played a lot of stuff in the intervening time. I, like yourself, I started Sea of Stars. Yeah. I recognize that it is a good video game. I will probably get it back around to it at some point. It just didn't keep me. Really? Um, and not really through any fault of the game. Just like other stuff started coming out. And I just got distracted like the little ADHD butterfly that I am. <laughs> um, so I instead have been playing a game that I had mentioned on the podcast previously where I played a demo of it. And that is Lies of P, yes, the yes, Pinocchio-themed Bloodborne uh, clone. Yeah, how was it? It is great. It's yeah. really good. It's um, it's probably it's the best Souls like I've played that hasn't been made by FromSoft. Like I've played things like The Surge and Mortal Shell and the Neo games, and Neo Two is very good as well. But I think this one probably takes it for me as the best non FromSoft Souls like. It kind of it pulls a lot of influences from the Souls games in like very obvious ways it wears its influences on its cyborg sleeve it takes sort of the the parry mechanic from Sekiro it has the rally mechanic from Bloodborne where you can win back lost health by being extra aggressive it has the weapon arts from Dark Souls 3 and Elden Ring sort of special abilities tied to each weapon you use so by combining all these like strong points from all these FromSoft games it makes for a really satisfying combat sandbox there's a lot of different ways to play a lot of the different weapons have very different animations and timings so you really can tailor it how you want to the cool thing is that the blade and the handle of each weapon can be separated and can be reconfigured so if you want to put like the the handle of a rapier onto a big warhammer and you start fencing with this giant warhammer you can just do that um so there's a lot of different ways to play it the combat is really satisfying um it's not perfect it has some wild difficulty spikes, particularly once you get past the halfway point. Um, like I'm talking about going through an area that's an absolute piece of piss to get through and then fighting a boss that's about on par with like Orphan of Cause or Millennia from uh, Elden Ring. And that's like not an optional endgame boss. That's just about two thirds of the way through the main story. You actually just made me shiver there when you said the Orphan of Cause. Like, yeah. That's, that's, that's an... That's been hanging over me for the last couple of years because I still haven't beaten him. Same, man. Orphan of Cause is my white whale in FromSoft. Yeah, I, it, yeah. it, he, he's he's the only one that I haven't been able to just put my mind to and eventually beat. <laughs> like yeah. the the final boss from Sekiro was a chore. That I did like a full week of attempts to beat him, but I got there. But Orphan of Cause, like, I don't think I ever really felt like I was getting close. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um. So yeah, I definitely recommend checking out Liza P. It is on Game Pass, so any sort of Xbox people out there, throw it on, give it a look. Um, if you're not an Xbox uh, player, if you're on PlayStation, just play Bloodborne. Um, <laughs> if you've access to a PlayStation, just play Bloodborne. If you don't, consider buying a PlayStation to play Bloodborne. Um, 
I think I should probably just replay Bloodborne for Halloween. Yeah, just, I'm thinking about just, it. just play Bloodborne and pretend that uh, you're Pinocchio in it or whatever. Like, yeah, just play Bloodborne and lie to your loved ones, and that's yeah. good enough. <laughs> um, and the uh, the other game that uh, distracted me away from Sea of Stars is one that I'm not going to get into in too much detail here because it might come up a little bit later on, and that is Ooh. the latest from Bethesda. Oh, Starman. Starman. Mm. Old field boy. Um, field of Dreams. Yep. The Field. Like, Star Wars. Like pretty much everyone on the internet and in real life, I have opinions about it, um, a lot of which are to do with the game's opening. So well, that's, I think, that's what I was going to ask. We're not, we're not into things proper, but you were the one who came up with this topic. Was it inspired by Starfield? Yeah, absolutely it was. Uh, it's, I, like, I was playing Starfield and just got kind of obsessed with the idea of how a game that's been brewing for so long that has such a huge budget, that has such a level of hype and expectation behind it, can start so badly. Mm. Like, they have to have known what they were doing. Um, but yeah, we'll get back around to that. So I suppose we'll, we'll get on to the main block of the episode now. Um, what are we doing? We're doing the openings of video games, but I, I, I love the way like people listening are like, I wonder what they're going to talk about. And then also one half of us is like, what are we going to talk about? But I, yeah, I have things to talk about, but you just kind of want to like good and bad. We're just going to talk about notable openings, the, the good and bad ways to do them, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. So I, I, like a couple episodes ago, I think number 63, nice. Um, you and I spoke about our favorite endings from video games. Yes. Um, so in classic, Hey, look, listen fashion, we're going to loop back around and do things out of order. It's I'm like poetry. Talk- it rhymes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm going to talk about the opening stretches from some games. Good, bad, indifferent, you know, because I think a game's opening is arguably more important than its ending. A game with a bad ending will color how you feel about the game after the fact, but you've still finished it. A game with a bad opening, you'll just put it down and move on. Never even experienced it. So yeah, yeah, I think it's a good point. I'm, yeah. I'm on board. So that's that's kind of what was going through my head when I was playing Starfield, and thinking like, if you get the opening of a game wrong, especially if you get it wrong enough, it doesn't matter what else you do right, because a good chunk of people will never see it. Mm. Um, so I suppose a good place to start is you know good openings. We don't like to be negative on the podcast, so let's try I, and... I, I don't mind being negative on the podcast sometimes. Yeah. What What, what to you... <laughs> what to you is sort of what makes a good opening for a video game? Like, do you think it's about establishing the narrative or the setting or, or, or the gameplay or what kind of... What has to be there for you to go, this is a strong opening? I think all those things are important, but not necessarily... They, it, I don't think it doesn't necessarily need to hit all of them at the same time. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, all of them. All of them are valid ways to open a game. It's weird. You were kind of like, let's not talk negatively, but I'm going to talk negatively. Yeah, to talk positively, I want to talk negatively for a second. Do you know what I just just to simplify? Do you know what I hate? Yeah. Do you know what I absolutely hate is when you boot up a game, right? Maybe there's an opening cutscene, then the yeah. game starts and it's telling you how to move the right analog stick to move the, the camera and there's a fallen press, tree that you have to click or three to crouch yeah. to go under I, yeah. I never think that's necessary yeah ever one that really jumps out of my head is the first kingdom hearts i don't this is just the one that's in my head which does that it has this 
very elongated fucking prologue that has you like move the camera and stuff like that. And I just so Kev like let's find reason number five hundred thousand to bring up this game. Uh, Breath of the Wild mm. has a perfect opening. Yeah, like perfect. Uh, and it's weird because it's well, if we're talking about openings in a negative sense, I do have to talk about Zelda down the line sometime in this episode mm-hmm. because. But Breath of the Wild is just the it's the absolute blueprint on how to kind of you know establish a setting like the opening like in terms of cutscene the opening of of Breath of the Wild is very short. Tears of the Kingdom the second go around, I think they they allowed themselves to have more of a narrative opening. There's a big story part before you get to the the gameplay. Yeah. They kind of let the, but Breath of the Wild is all business. It, it establishes the setting very quickly. Link is waking up and then you're just left off into a kind of a chunk of the world, which is like a smaller part of, you know, it's a microcosm of the open world that mm-hmm. you'll be exploring for the game. And like, yeah, you don't need to be overtly taught anything yet for the first like three hours of that game, as you're exploring, you're learning every single minute you're playing it. Like I couldn't improve it as an opening of the game. It's a, it's kind of a, a, a long tutorial that, like you know, you don't really notice the tutorial. And like I said, Tears of the Kingdom has a long opening kind of story section where you're with Zelda underground and you're you're encountering a Ganondorf-shaped man. But that kind of recreates the um, the opening of Breath of the Wild as well. In Breath of the Wild, you're in the Great Plateau, and Tears of the Kingdom, you're in a place called. Um, just called it Sky Island. What was it called again? Sky... I think is, is it the Great Sky Island or yeah, something? Yeah, that sounds right. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's just, if you say, Liam, what's a good opening of a game? That's the one that immediately jumps to my mind. And just, we've talked about it before, so I don't need to go on more about it again. You know, we talked about Breath of the Wild. Maybe. We haven't even done the Breath of the Wild episode yet, but I think we still just talked about that game so much, you know? <laughs> I think it's, per- I, I personally think it's perfect. I've actually read negative things about it online, and I'm just like, no. Maybe replaying the game, it's, it's, it's frustrating to some people. You just want to get into the action. The game does kind of bar you from the open world. It's not, a game is entirely free and open for 90% of 99% of that opening prologue you are stuck in the great plateau yeah but i think i think it should be studied for how good an opening it is i think it's perfect absolutely yeah i think i suppose to that point of it barring you from the open world i thought it was interesting when i found out from like watching speedrunners and stuff that it is very literally barring you from the open world like the, yeah the world isn't generated yeah exactly the ga- the game doesn't load in the rest of the world until you've yeah. completed the that's, that's, the, the plateau stuff yeah speedrunners have to do those first four shrines and they have to get the power the, the paraglider and stuff like that they have to do it it can't be skipped yeah yeah which is very interesting um but i think as an example of a strong opening i'm fully on board with you um i think what it comes down to the sort of the things that we, we, we've hit on already where you know you want the game to set the scene you want to sort of set a narrative hook you want to sort of establish the characters in some way establish the setting in some way but you also want to set the I guess gameplay expectations. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I think uh, Breath of the Wild does that really well. It lets you out of that the shrine of resurrection. You come out on the plateau and then bit by bit, as you said, it's tutorializing you without any text box popping up. But everything you do, you're learning about a new system that you are then going to use repeatedly for the next hundred hours across the open world. Yeah. Be that the the combat or cooking or like bonuses from clothes or having to deal with extreme temperatures and stuff they're all key parts of the gameplay that are kind of drip fed to you through the opening that then sort of echo and reverberate through the rest of the game there's no for an opening that does take a couple hours and does pin you into that area for a couple hours there's no fat on it there's nothing extraneous there everything that's in the great plateau 
is replicated elsewhere. It's all skills that you'll use going forward. Yeah, yeah um, sure. I think that's that's excellent. I think that's, that's applicable to the the Great Sky Island as well. Um, but I do think the the sort of the narrative beat that you have to get through first does slow it down a bit. Um, not enough to sort of for me to say that it's a, a bad opening, but it's definitely not as strong as Breath of the Wild is. It just it just makes it kind of a less perfect example, a little bit. And that and that opening narrative part of, of Tears of the Kingdom is quite cool. But like, if we're talking yeah. about kind of you know the purity of Breath of the Wild, you know, yeah, absolutely. Um, another game that I think uh, starts you off very well is, and it's not a game that I love, and I know it's not a game that you love, but you gotta give respect to the, the opening, and that is uh, Insomniac's Spider Man. I like Spider-Man fine, don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't really like it though. I like it. I like it. I play I play. it just this one always comes up as the kind of yeah, it's 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 my poster child for um amazing mediocrity in the video game. Yeah, so you say things like amazing mediocrity, and I don't <laughs> think that qualifies as you liking it. I'm I'm playing the second one. I don't know if I'm gonna play it at launch, but I'm definitely, I'm definitely playing it. Yeah, no, that it actually looks really cool. Yeah. Um but I think in terms of, you know, Establishing the setting, establishing the character, and setting the gameplay expectations. Yeah, that's true. Yep. It does it so well. It literally starts with Peter donning the spider suit, zipping out the window, and straight away straight you're in yeah. straight into gameplay. You're in control. You're straight into the traversal, which is the best thing in the game. Mm. So getting you right into that system straight away. Um, straight away you're getting to grips with the streets of New York and the layout and, and how you're moving around it with the web slinging, which again is, you know, a skill set that you're going to be using from minute one through to hour 40 or whatever. So it, it really, it wastes no time in getting you into what it is that the game wants you to do, you know? And then obviously there's, you know, there's stuff with, with Kingpin and there's like a, sort of a, a level area for you to explore and sort of work through the, the, the game's combat sandbox and, establish a bit of narrative and characterization and stuff um but it's mostly for me it's about the um that game is at its best when you're just kind of zooping around being a spider boy and it gets you right into that from the get-go it's true and he um webs toast into his mouth or something doesn't he yeah it's a bit cheeky isn't it it's a bit anime i like it yeah do you ever wonder what the webs are made of oh god i Mm. hope it's margarine if he's eating toast for that (laughs) margarine I don't know, man. <laughs> Real Irish butter, Liam. Where's your patriotism? <laughs> Kerry you know Gold. Do you know what's another opening that springs to mind if we're talking, if we're remaining in this positive pool? Sure. And it's not really applicable in the same way that Spider-Man and, and Breath of the Wild was just now in terms of, you know, setting the gameplay up very elegantly. So this is a game that actually tells its story through gameplay a lot it's a great example of it mm-hmm. uh that would be one of the best things i'd say about it it taught me a lot about that when i was younger but it actually chooses to open with a lengthy ass cutscene okay and the game doesn't have lengthy ass cutscenes except for its opening and its ending but it kind of chooses to have this kind of palette setter of an opening that you know sets the tone and the, the characters and the premise i'm talking about shadow of the Colossus, by the way okay yeah it has a, like a 10 minute long opening cutscene, which, you know, it's a bit excessive, but it's just the music and, you know, it's as it sweeps over the mountain and it establishes you, know, very slowly establishes your character kind of riding into the, the land where this game is set in the temple where he's, he's bringing his dead missiles so he can maybe 
let's hope he doesn't make a pact with an evil god to resurrect her. But I think that might be what he does, you know. It's on the cards, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let's hope he doesn't kill any innocent fucking creatures. But um, it's just it, it springs to mind when talking about good openings because that game is all it's so vibey, Kev. Yeah, <laughs> I don't have a better way to say that. It's all vibes. That game. It's all like in, in its quiet and in its sparse use of music. When the music kicks in, it's important, and the opening kind of has that. Mm. It all it has that, and it kind of yeah, it almost it, it it settles you into it. And I think that's another kind of a good way to open a game. So maybe yeah, I don't think you learn much about the gameplay from the opening of Shadow Colossus. In fact, you learn absolutely nothing. But it settles you in for the ride. It kind of you know it cradles you yeah. <laughs> in its in its arms. And I always like, it's weird, whenever I replay that game every few years, uh, I look forward to the opening. I'm like, that's a part of it for me. I'm like, okay, controller down. Maybe I'll have some food while I'm for the first 10 minutes. I just love it. It's just so atmospheric and so beautiful. It's just a beautiful game. That's a part of it. Yeah, I suppose when a game is sort of predicated on its vibes in the way that Shadow of the Colossus is, what better way to start it than just take the controller out of the player's hand and just force feed them vibes for 10 minutes. Yeah, and it has a long-ass ending as well. So it's yeah. almost bookended, bookended by these long cutscenes. And it's the only time with, where um, the developers really allowed themselves to indulge in kind of um, uh, not having the, the, the player in control. But it works. It 100% works. Um, his previous game, um, Ico, or Ico, mm. has a very similar one. But Shadow would be the one that I'd use as an example. Yeah. I'm trying to remember Last Guardian. Does that also start with a lengthy cutscene? No, I don't yeah. think so. Last Guardian is a cool one, actually. You're kind of in the grotto and you have to kind of rip the chains off the griffin. Oh, yeah. That's actually really good, yeah. Yeah, it actually is really good. Uh, I haven't played that game since 2016, which, as you know, was two years ago. <laughs> and, and will always be. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's long overdue for a replay. That's a that's an interesting yeah. as hell game. Yeah, yeah, it's underrated. Not yeah. perfect, but it's underrated. For sure. Um, I'd say the same about all of his games, to be honest. I don't think, I, any, think I don't think any of them are perfect. But I think they're all really interesting. Yeah, I, I don't think Shadow Class is underrated. In fact, well, no, actually, yeah. Everyone who talks about it loves it, but maybe maybe that game is even overrated. It's not, but like you said, yeah, these games aren't perfect. But you, you know, we're getting off track here. But you want people to make interesting games, even if they're not perfect. You know, hundred percent, yeah. And that's actually a good lead into the next game that I want to talk nice. about in terms of the opening. Is a game that I don't think is perfect a game that doesn't really gel with me at all spider-man miles morales <laughs> no i actually really like that one i think that's better than the first one um <laughs> no it's uh xcom the first xcom oh right okay uh a game that i played on the ps3 and played for about three hours and went this is quite good it's for someone else yeah, is it, is it just a case that you don't, like, it's just a genre? Because it is kind of regarded as, like, the best of a genre, like, if you're playing that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think, for me, for those sort of tactically turn-based games, I need more. I need something else going on as well. Like uh, like in Fire Emblem Three Houses, where you have the the, the life sim waifu dating simulator thing going on as you, well you can you can take people out for tea time yeah you can have perfect tea time you i think if, if you can have you know 30 30 perfect tea time 70 percent tactical turn-based combat that's that works for me whereas xcom is you know 90 percent tactical turn-based combat and 10 percent fiddling with base designs and things um but the reason i bring it up is because the opening of that game is incredibly strong 
the opening mission sees you control a team of four soldiers uh, investigating uh, like the, the first moments of an alien invasion. Um, and basically it, it sort of, it, it tutorializes you, it teaches you sort of gameplay mechanics as in, you know, how to move your soldiers around, how to position them, how to use cover, how to make attacks and stuff. Um, but what it doesn't tell you is that the deck is stacked against you. This first mission is going to go badly. Regardless of what you do, three out of your four guys are going to get killed and only one of them is going to survive. And kind of the the brilliance of it is that the whole game is about, yeah, the tactical turn-based combat, but there's it's about um, the sort of the meta-narratives that you create with your soldiers because it has permadeath. When one of your characters gets killed, they're dead, they're gone. So the game teaches you that straight away by killing three of the four three of the four characters it gives to you. Um, the game wants you to feel sort of outmanned and outgunned by the alien threat. It establishes that by literally gunning you down. And it also wants you to sort of get invested in your characters who survive. So it does that by giving you just this one guy who survives, who gets promoted after his first mission, becomes way more powerful than everyone else. So for all your following missions, this guy is like a level ahead of everyone and has a rocket launcher and shit. So it, it, it gets the narrative set up. It gets sort of the meta narratives of, of you caring about your soldiers set up and it teaches you the gameplay in a really sort of smooth way. So I was really impressed with the opening of it. Rest of the game didn't hold me, but that, that's more about me than it is about it. But that opening is really, really strong. That sounds, I never actually knew that. I've, my, my, my brother is like the biggest XCOM fan ever, but I, know, I don't remember that opening. Yeah, I like I hadn't played it in years, and I think CJ mentioned it on the episode yeah, last time around. Yeah, huge fan of it as well, I believe. Huge yeah, fan. and when I knew we were looking at doing this openings episode, I went and it's on the PS Plus catalog uh, available to stream. So I replayed that opening again, um, and it really holds up. It's it's really strong, and I thought maybe this time, because I've played like Fire Emblem Three Houses and I played Mario Rabbids and I've played a couple more tactical turn-based games i thought maybe this time would be the time that i get drawn into xcom and maybe i could be an xcom guy now and and no it still didn't work for me but maybe next time when's next time uh probably about 10 years i don't know <laughs> well, that's hope that's hope <laughs> i'm sorry though. i mean when i say let's hope i mean let's hope we're still alive for <laughs> for you to finally get into xcom Oy. but look if we're remaining on positive for a moment before we start you know getting all negative because i know you're itching to talk about starfield <laughs> and how it how it just inspired this whole episode yeah i just want to really quickly do a rundown okay yep a rundown and i i don't know exactly what point i'm garnering from this but really quick i'm gonna rattle them off right sure final fantasy franchise kev i brought it up twice in the podcast now yes final fantasy is full of amazing openings and i'm just gonna i'm just gonna go for it why not talk about final fantasy 7 the opening bombing mission is uh, the perfect example of a game starting in media res and mm. giving you all the information you need. It's iconic for a reason. It's like utterly iconic. They, they, they can't stop recreating it. The opening of Crisis Core recreates uh, um, Cloud jumping off the train. Oh, really? Yeah, Cloud jumping off that train and starting the bombing mission and the world growing from there. Mm -hmm. You know, learning, you know, about Mako, learning about Shinra, uh, meeting Barrett, meeting... It's just it's just perfect. And it, it started... It, it's, it's zippy and you're right into the story. It's the complete opposite of what Final Fantasy 13 did, oh God. which also starts off in media res, but has you playing catch up to figure out what is happening in this story for at least 15 hours of gameplay afterwards. Mm. 
Like I, I, I do love a slow burn opening, but like if we're talking about a narrative driven thing that just starts off guns running, Final Fantasy Seven. Hey, what about Final Fantasy Eight? How about an impressive display of graphical prowess and brilliant uh, music to open up a game? Oh yeah, that's that's just another um, kind of almost you know palette setter as well, like Shadowed Classes was. That just gets you into it. It's almost like a montage. Um, CG CG cutscene of just showing upcoming things intercut with a uh, squall and his frenemy um, cutting each other's faces. <laughs> uh, Final Fantasy Nine, Kev. Yeah, uh, two-hour multi-focus. Like you jump between different characters, all set within one area, a city and a airship that's bringing a play to the city. But it, the, the people who are running the play are actually trying to kidnap the princess, and you get to see that story play out from all these different perspectives. Uh, it introduces the like let's say our four main characters and one of our main primary villains and it's just absolutely adorable perfect again final fantasy 6 very very atmospheric almost melancholic opening and i that's the reason why that's impressive because it was a goddamn super nintendo game yeah final fantasy 4 has a character reflecting on the fact that he's just after baiting up some people in the town and stealing their crystal here we here we have <laughs> here we have introspection very relatable here we here we have introspection from a main character in a in, in a narrative driven game which wasn't happening a lot in 1991 another brilliant opening like i said i don't know what i'm garnering from all this i just want to talk about good final fantasy openings for at least one minute more yeah is there anything to be said for um my personal favorite well, no, not favorite but the one that i always defend the opening of 15 I was going. I was getting there. Okay. I was. Uh, Kev, I'm right on board with you. I'm glad I'm doing this this podcast with you because I was actually recently talking to my friend of mine who said he almost got completely turned off by 15 because of its opening. Really? The oh, opening no. of 15. When we're listening to, is it Florence and the Machine? Yeah. It's Florence and the Machine's version of um, Stand by Me. Stand by Me, and your four guys are pushing their broken down car because look, we've talked about this before, but the core of that game, the only. Only the one of the only things that works about it narratively is the friendship between the four main characters. It's like the heart of the game. So I think it is beyond elegant to begin that story with them just you know bonding over pushing a car. Like is the is the dialogue awkward? Yes, it's Final Fantasy Fifteen, but it doesn't matter. It works. At, it works at its core. Am I misremembering, or does it not actually start in Media Res in the boss fight against Ifrit? Oh, I actually like that less now that I've remembered that. <laughs> oh, You're right. I, I really like that. This starts <laughs> this this huge like doom and gloom, fire and brimstone boss fight, where you're like, "What the fuck is going on here? This is chaos." And then it cuts from that to the four guys pushing the car, listening to music. Yeah, so it's sort of right. it's it sets up sort of the the massive stakes and power that the game it's is building yeah, towards. Yeah. Cuts from that and then goes like, "This is part of it." But what's really important are these four dudes. And it costs them pushing the car then. I think it's lovely. Yeah, good shout. Uh, Final Fantasy 16, the newest one, had a brilliantly um, uh, fast-paced and exciting opening two hours. Does does it keep the keep that gas in the engine for the entire game story? I'm not sure about that, but the opening is very good. So good that Squaresoft, Square Enix confidently made a whole demo out of it. And this was just released that people make people buy the game. Yeah. And I don't know, Final Fantasy 10, um, yeah, water. Water sports, not not, <laughs> not that kind of water sports. <laughs> so yeah, that's all I want to do. I just think I just wanted to emphasize the fact that historically Final Fantasy has had some brilliant openings and just leave it at that. Yeah, absolutely. So that's enough positivity. 
let's talk maybe about some games that didn't quite get it so right. Why don't you launch into Starfield, Kev? How about that? Yeah. So, I am not entirely qualified to speak with great authority about Bethesda Game Studios' output because I'm not really a fan of their stuff. Okay. I don't hate them. I, I've played quite a few of them. They just don't do a whole pile for me. I loved Morrowind back in the day. I never played Oblivion. I played Skyrim a bit. Didn't love it. I played Fallout 4 a bit. Didn't like it. So I was going into Starfield with not particularly high expectations. But at the same time, like the the media coverage and the build-up to it, it looked quite interesting. And it was on Game Pass, so I'm not dropping any money for it. So I was like, yeah, I'll give it a go. And this is a game that is about exploration. Like you're, you, The whole sort of narrative plot of it is that you very quickly are signed up with this group of explorers called Constellation. And their whole thing is just about space, the final frontier. It's, it's, it's some Jean-Luc Picard shit. They just want to explore the known universe and beyond. So it's a game that's about exploration that starts with you working a day job in a mine. Right. It starts with you just in an elevator getting talked at for ages. You go down, you pick up your laser cutter, and then you literally just go to work in the mine. Like you wander around shooting rocks until minerals come out to go into your inventory. Are they trying to, are they trying to set that up? You know, it's a mundane job, but you're, you're going to be cast off into adventure. It's like Luke on the moisture farm, Kev. I definitely think that's what they were going for. Um, but I think for that to work, there has to be a big moment of contrast. Mm. Like you have to come out of the mine and instantly be wowed by the vista. There has to be a line that you cross where you step from the mundane into like the, the, the spectacle that is the rest of the game. Like um, even in Breath of the Wild, like uh, it's not mundane, but that the opening couple of seconds, I suppose, where you're in the Shrine of Resurrection and then you come outside yeah. and you see the vista and the camera pulls back and you see everything. Starfield doesn't have that. You work in the mine, you come out of the mine, you're in a sort of a facility. Some guy comes up, he wants the artifact that you just found in the mine because you're the chosen one or you touch the doodah or the MacGuffin or whatever. <laughs> um and some space pirates arrive and there's a bit of a shootout and then you get control of that guy's ship and that's when i was like okay well here's here's where it's gonna you know expand out and you get in the ship and you go to take off well you don't get in the ship actually what you do is you approach the ship and you press a and you get a loading screen and then you approach the captain's chair and you press a and you get a loading screen and then you hold x to go into orbit and you get a loading screen. Um, so then you're finally up in space and there's a little bit of ship combat and that's not very good. And then <laughs> I'm basically just recounting the start of the game now, but it just, it's really stuck with me how uninteresting it is every step of the way. Eventually you go, you do, you go to another planet, you sort of clear out a base. And then after all this, you get told to go to Constellations, the, this organization's home base, which is sort of, in a city called New Atlantis and you get there and then that's the big sort of sci-fi city that you've seen in a lot of the the, the coverage of the game. 
And how long are you playing at this point now? Oh, it felt like a couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's really slow. Mm. It's really slow. It's really visually uninteresting. It, the gameplay doesn't, like the, like the little bit of combat you do with the pirates just doesn't feel good. The, the ship-to-ship combat doesn't feel good. The space travel isn't really there. It's just fast travel with extra loading screens splitting it up. Uh, that's, the, that's one of the main things I've been hearing about people complaining about, actually. Yeah, but the thing that I had heard all the way along with a lot of the review coverage is that you have to stick with it. It gets good. It gets good after 10 hours. It gets good after 15 hours. Someone said it gets good after 25 or 30 hours. <laughs> okay. And... For some reason, that got its worms into my brain. I was like, well, I'm not enjoying it now, but there's loads of other games that I love that I would say that about. You have to give it a little bit of time. You have to meet it halfway at first. And, and then funny, it gets and good. It, and it's funny because I, I agree with you, but I also don't think it's a good recommendation. No, no, I don't even, think... Even as I say it to someone, I'm like, it gets, even if it's a TV show or something like that, it gets good in season two or whatever. Yeah. Like if a game gets good after... Even three hours, like, you know, but if someone's saying it gets good after, like, five, ten hours, I'm like, that's a terrible recommendation. I would just sooner not play the game. Yes, I, I agree with you. I have so many where I'm kind of like, yeah, I'm glad I stuck with it. But that opening was terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So I did stick with it. And I kept playing. Mm. And, like, the main plot is kind of plotting. And it kind of has you... It introduces a lot of companions uh, very quickly. A lot, a lot of characters that can travel around with you. All of them have their own like um, personalities and backstories and, and missions associated with them. But it throws a lot of them at you at once. Like within the first two hours or so, you've met like five of them. You have to. You can only bring one with you at a time, so that you kind of get analysis paralysis that you don't know which one to engage with. So it doesn't really matter which ones are engaging because there's a chance you won't see them. And then the main missions themselves are kind of just go here, clear a base, come back, repeat. Um, so I was playing through, I got like five hours. I was like, this this isn't good yet. Ten hours, I still don't think it's good, but I kept at it. Ten hours is a long time to not be enjoying something. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I, I, I went another 30. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I just I got obsessed with the idea that it has to get good eventually in face of all evidence to the contrary. Um, and I have to tell you, it does. It does? Ah, it's a good game. The twist. Yeah, it, twist. Uh, it, it sickens me to my core. And I definitely can't recommend this in the way that I can recommend some of the other games we might talk about. Because it does take a long time to get good, depending on your choices. The reason for me that Starfield takes so long to get going is they've gated almost all of the things that are fun about the game behind unlocks in the skill tree mm. your your sort of your starting combat setup just it, it feels clunky it feels slow it feels weighty when you start getting your skill upgrades for the different weapons they start doing a bit more damage it feels a bit better you can start using a like a jetpack to boost around places that's not unlocked by standard you have to unlock that yourself which adds a new sort of verticality to the combat the combat's really good in that game once you spend enough time to unlock the stuff that makes it good and how long are we talking here well, the game does a really bad job of telling you what you need to do to make it fun. Well, so well, how, how, how long, long was it for you before you started enjoying it? How about that? I, I think I started enjoying it by about 15 or 20 hours. That's mental. Guys. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now, if <laughs> if I had known going in, I could have made better choices with my earlier level ups. But yeah, I mean, yeah. there was no way That's for me to know that. It's not your fault, like yeah. yeah. Like the 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 ship to ship combat is terrible to begin with, but if you unlock the upgrades, you can get thrusters for more maneuverability. You can get like weapons that allow you to slow time and target different parts of the ships. So instead of destroying them, you can disable them. And then once they're disabled, you can board the other ships and you can fight people and steal their ships. All really cool, really fun stuff. Gated behind unlocks that they never really tell you how to get. Um, there's like a base building system where you can, you can build outposts on worlds and like harvest resources to sort of feed into like a, a, a crafting system. Again, quite fun when you get it going but all the cool stuff in it is gated behind more unlocks so you need to keep playing to get level ups to get the points to spend to unlock these things but the actual act of playing it without them is less fun so it's like you need to you're still in that fucking mine you're still just working to get to the bit that's fun and it's incredibly frustrating but after all that especially when you get to a point where like the combat is fun. The ship to ship combat is fun. Um, and you have enough sort of resources to sort of to research and build gear to really get stuck in and engage with it. Some of the narrative stuff is great. There's a, there's a, a side quest in it where you go undercover with the space pirates called the Crimson Fleet. And it is excellent. It's, it's like a fucking hard boiled detective story where you get too deep undercover. You start questioning who the real good guys are. You have to make choices about, you know, do you support the the figures of law and order, even if you disagree with what they're doing, or do you sympathize with the pirates? It's great. It's excellent stuff, but you have to really slog to get there. Um, This is such a shocking twist because I didn't think you were, because last time I talked to you about this, you weren't liking it. Yep. And the last few times you've talked, it just hasn't come up. So were you purposely hiding it for the podcast that you you ended up liking it? Um, (laughs) No. Every, Every time you asked me over the last couple of weeks, was I enjoying it? And I replied, somewhere along the lines of absolutely not or not really but i'm still playing it was sort of after you stopped asking i kept playing and eventually i found the fun here's what i think i think and this might even exist already but if not it will exist soon i think we're going to see walkthroughs on youtube not of how to play starfield but of how to enjoy Starfield. <laughs> I think you need you, we will need YouTubers to tutorialize people, to teach them how to upgrade and build their characters in a way that will allow them to engage with the game that is actually fun. That's another thing that makes me like, I'm glad you're enjoying it, don't get me wrong, and I'm, I'm, I'm very interested hearing the things that work about it, things that are good, but I'm a little bit sassy about this game. Because oh, absolutely. Justified sass. Also, the, the things I hear online is just like, not only, not only like, oh, it gets good after 15 hours, ellipsis and with the right mods yeah i'm thinking no then i'll just play another game honestly i don't care if i have to wait 15 hours for it gets good and i have to apply the correct fan-made mods i'm just i don't give a shit about the game to be perfectly honest to add that thing as well that and it requires it could potentially require youtube videos to explain how for me to how to enjoy this game I'm just thinking I'm going to miss out in this cultural uh, touchstone. Honestly, I'm I'm fine. I'm yep. absolutely fine. Yeah, and, and like I said, I would not recommend this game to anyone. <laughs> I absolutely would not. Uh, please, I mean, anyone who's going to buy the game probably has done so already. Yeah, for sure. Um, like if you have a lot of free time and you have Game Pass, and you you stick it out and you look up a couple of guides or something to figure out what order to unlock stuff in, you will end up having a good time with it. 
alternatively you could do literally anything else with your time <laughs> like your bathroom probably needs a clean learn to go crochet. do that instead learn to crochet yeah yeah learn how to play chess i don't know but yeah if you want to play starfield and you stick with it there is a good time there but my god it's one of the worst openings i've played in a long time but you know what it reminds me of and it's very not not a similar game but that thing where I'm like, oh, I'd love to not play that. I don't want to wait for 15 hours to get good. Yeah. Is that Death Stranding by Hideo Kojima? It is absolutely one of the examples I was thinking of. Yeah? Yeah. Because I don't think it was quite that long. But was it three, four, five hours before that game was anyway good? I think it was closer to 10. Closer to 10. Yeah. Because I do remember, because I bought that game out of sheer loyalty to Kojima. Yeah. Honestly, because I just love Metal Gear Solid so much and he's making a brand new game. Yeah, there, it, the reviews were divisive uh you know the premise was weird but i was like i'm fuck, i'm getting this game and i was really struggling to like it yeah really really struggling and then there is a moment that it just clicks mm -hmm. but you have to like like you said almost 10 hours to get there yeah and with death stranding i do think the juice is worth the squeeze i <laughs> yeah. I, I think the level of good that it gets is worth how pedestrian it starts. But I couldn't recommend it either, though. Oh, yeah, no. I probably still could, but only to someone I knew. If I if I knew someone and thought there was a chance they'd like it, I would say, absolutely play this game. Be conscious of the fact that it's going to take a while, but it's worth it. It is a tough one, because when it does get good, like it, it's, very, it's a very marmite game anyway. Yeah. So you don't want to risk someone playing it and, you know, it might never get good for someone, <laughs> to be honest, because it's just this yeah. weird... Can you, imagine, can you imagine slogging through that game, not enjoying it during the bit that we think it gets good, and then getting dialogue like the Princess Beach thing? Yeah, you just fucking throw your controller to TV like. Presumably, yeah. You'd never buy a Kojima game again. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm glad I played that game. I don't know if or when I'll ever play it again. When it, when it announced it was getting a sequel, I was like, really? Yeah, it's that makes a, no it's, sense. It's such an insular thing. It's such a one-off kind of done thing. Like, it's like I don't care about the characters in Death Stranding. I don't want to see what they're doing next. No. I don't care. It was just, it's like, it was the, actually, despite Kojima's, um, you know, fame for, like, having these big story-driven games, it was the gameplay of Death Stranding that pulled me into it. Not yeah. a story, not it, his characters. It's the ultimate walking simulator. It is. It's a game that is expressly concerned with simulating walking. And it managed to be quite emotional. Yeah, absolutely. And I think without wanting to get too much into spoilers and stuff, I think the, the sort of there's a bit towards the end of the game that has you go back to the area where you start for plot reasons. Do you know the bit I'm on about? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I think the emotional payoff of that bit is made better by the fact that the la the first time you were in this area, it was kind of a slog. It's, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It's you had such a struggle when you explored that area the first time, when you, the first time you go to that that facility, and it's just hard to move and to carry stuff, and it's frustrating and it's not very fun. And going back there with sort of late game gear and having explored the world and and the game's sort of ways to, to allow you to be creative, and going back there with all this information and these new skills and new abilities, and going back there for that plot reason. I think it, it resonates more because you had such a bad time there to begin with. Now, I'm not saying that Hideo Kojima intentionally made the first 10 hours of that game unfun. <laughs> but I was just saying... But I wouldn't I be surprised. Thinking, I was just thinking, have we accidentally stumbled on another 
way to do a good opening is by doing a bad opening. Is having a bad opening, can you then weaponize that later on by the player reflecting on the how bad the opening was and how better things have gotten now? Yeah. Is that a good is that is that ironically a good opening? It's, Are we through the looking glass? It's a hell of a it's a Hail Mary. Like it's it's a <laughs> it's a risky play because if if the player never gets to that bit where it comes full circle, it's all for there's no payoff. It's just a bad opening, you know? No, I, I you know, genuinely don't think anyone ever intends to make a bad opening. Hmm. I think it just, I think people are just misguided sometimes. Creators are misguided. Yeah. Now, I suppose on the topic of bad openings and games that, you know, get good, you mentioned Breath of the Wild earlier, but you did say that you wanted to circle back to the Zelda franchise. I think I can imagine which ones you want to talk about, but um, is, is there plural. one that jumps how to mind? Did, how, yeah, you said ones. You you absolutely know what I'm getting towards. <laughs> you, you absolutely know. Before Breath of the Wild came out in 2017 and had this like immaculate um, opening that immediately put, you know, uh, the, the the player into just like open-ended gameplay, mm-hmm. I had spent years reflecting on how Zelda had just started having bad openings. Yeah. At least the 3D Zeldas. Yeah. So I want to get talk talk about the Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess and the Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword, both of them, which are two games I really love. Even Skyward Sword, which is quite maligned, although Skyward Sword is getting a kind of um, a reevaluation because it's about ten years old now. I'm seeing a lot of people online getting back on board with it, which mm. I'm happy with. I've always liked it. Yeah, but those two games. Those it's two fun. games. Yeah, I know your feelings on Skyward Sword and the motion controls and the silly birds. But it's not just the motion <laughs> controls. I think it's, it's the fun. No, no, okay, sorry. Go on. <laughs> no, it's thank you, thank you for holding back there. But uh, Twilight Princess is definitely much more universally beloved. Mm-hmm. Yet um, uh, the two of them have two of my least favorite opening hours of any games I've ever played, because it's so, because they're so good in my opinion. It's so galling that they have bad openings. Yeah, and it's the polar opposite of what Breath of the Wild does. It's just this inelegant kind of mixture of teaching the player slowly and also having kind of because Skyward Sword and Twilight Princess have a little bit more of a traditional narrative mm-hmm. or at least a focus on a traditional narrative than like previous Zelda games I've always maintained not for the better I think something like let's stick with 3D Zelda I think something like Wind Waker and Majora's Mask managed to have these kind of very a little bit simplistic but cute effective storylines yeah. you know mostly to, but a lot, lot told through the world building that you know intrudes on the game less but twilight princess and skyward sort of want to be these story driven things more so than probably any other two zeldas they want to be a, they want to have character arcs and they want to have cutscenes, which is some people love i think i'm not gatekeeping but i think that's no not the correct way to make a zelda game i think there's you can do better but twilight princess is an interesting one because it got in the middle of development they got the people working on it were told hey um are you enjoying making this gamecube game uh, we have a new console coming out called the Wii, <laughs> and we need you to port that over. And this Wii is going to have this motion control thing, and we want you to when when the player swings the thing, we want Link to swing his sword. And anyway, it changed the whole thing. Yeah, the opening of Twilight Princess, like a lot of Zelda games, Link wakes up in his in a village. Not every Zelda game, but a lot of Zelda games have Link waking up in a village. They have very kind of mundane, domestic openings to kind of you know like look at the moisture farm again. Yeah. It's before the call to adventure. He has to leave his kind of humble beginnings to go off to adventure. Uh, you're just in that village for way too long. Yeah. And it was Shigeru Miyamoto who elongated that section of the game. Really? Yeah. When it got ported over to the Wii, when it was going to be on the GameCube and the Wii, he wanted to make sure that this new sparkly piece of technology to Nintendo Wii with all its new things of people, he wanted to make sure that the game meticulously 
taught the player how to do things. So originally you were going to wake up in the in the town and have a have a have a rummage around, which is exactly what you do in like Ocarina of Time and uh, Wind Waker. You that you yeah. rummage around a hometown for a little bit before the inciting incident um, kicks Link off into adventure. But now Twilight Princess has like three days worth of content in that content in that, and it's just because. In one of the days, Link learns how to use a wooden sword. One of them, he is using a slingshot. It's very slowly teaching you the things, and it's contriving story reasons, like a kid's getting captured by monkeys and whatever. It's just so slow, yeah. so aggressively slow. And I'm going to jump over to the Skyward Sword for a second. Skyward Sword um, opens in Link's humble place. This time, it's an island in the sky called Skyloft, where he's, uh, he's in school. Yada, yada, yada. The details don't matter. You spend an awfully long time in that town before like the inciting incident kicks off. It's all very slow. The story gets in the way again because it all has all these things to set up. It has to set up the relationship between Link and Zelda. It has to set up uh, uh, the, the, the origins of the Master Sword. There's a lot going on. But why I think Skyward Sword is a slightly better opening is because A, it is using the time. I might not like it, but it's mm-hmm. using its time to set up things that are important to the story. Yeah, Like Link is spending the game rescuing zelda he's like following after so setting up their relationship and the time you have in the opening hours is, is correct and also skyloft in that game is a place you've returned to all the time yeah it's the hub world of the game so you end up going back there an awful lot so i'm also kind of okay with the idea that it would make you familiar with an area that's going to be so important to the game going forward while twilight princess your hometown of um uh da, 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 da. Kev, what's that town called um Orden Orden Village. I did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Ordinaryville. Yeah, you you go you have to go back like yeah for a couple of side quests, but for no real reason. Yeah. Eventually, st- stuff really starts kicking off in Twilight Princess. Um, black ghouls come out and twi- come out of Twilight, and Link gets turned into a wolf and imprisoned in in Hyrule Castle, and then he meets um his sidekick Midna. And what's so annoying about that is. You'd have to change a lot of things, Kev. You'd have to get rid of Shigeru Miyamoto's um, want to meticulously, very slowly teach the player how to use very simple mechanics yeah. with this new console. But Link turned into a wolf in that castle is the obvious place to start that game. Yeah. You start it there. I don't know if you have to use a little brief flashback to establish what happened, but it's such a disarming way to start a game that that is the fucking 17th in this franchise, you know? Mm-hmm. To, uh, um, Majora's, Majora's Mask kind of does something very similar. Majora's Mask is the direct sequel to Ocarina of Time, the most popular one at the time. It gives you two minutes to be Link for a second, and now he's like really cool uh, in in subtle ways. Like he, if you jump over a gap in Majora's Mask, now he does flips. Yeah, which is just really elegant little details to just show. Link has been on one adventure before. Now look how cool he is. And then within moments, it pulls the rug from under your feet, and you get transformed into a creature called a Deku Scrub. You get trapped in this town and suddenly everything you know about Ocarina of Time doesn't matter. You've been kind of, you know, yeah, yeah, you've, you're not cool anymore. You're not the cool guy who's been on one yeah. adventure. You're kind of, yeah, you're kind of back. To, uh, it um, is. It's it's a really effective rug pull. Um, yeah. Actually, re- we should replay. Oh, we should talk about that in the good openings. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. So like I said, I replayed it relatively recently. Now, my, my replay fell off. I didn't stick with it. Um, but yeah, that opening section where you're, you're playing as the Deku Scrub through the sort of the, the first time around through the time loop is excellent. It really establishes the setting in a really interesting way. Um, made more impressive by, as you said, the context of this being a direct sequel to Ocarina of Time coming out like a year after Ocarina of Time. 
And the first thing it does is take away what makes it familiar and make you play in a completely different way. It's a really, really confident opening from Nintendo there. And I think Twilight Princess is a very not confident opening in a lot of ways. It's a very um, cagey opening. It's a very nervous opening in the sense that it's like, we really want that. So so in that sense, just as a kind of umbrella statement for the two games, the fact that they have slightly more in-depth narratives or slightly more focus on narrative, the fact that you have all these things that they want you to teach earlier on is actually to the detriment of the game. So I think they need to be like, redesigned from the start if you can start breath of the wild the way you start breath of the wild with all its myriad systems mm-hmm. you can have a more elegant opening and like who, who cares that these games are hella popular and they've they're mad old now but i've just been thinking about those openings a lot <laughs> throughout my life because i've played both games about five six times each i replay zelda games a lot so it's something i do yeah and i do really think they're a blight on both their games at the openings i think they're both quite bad with actually finding twilight princess the worst of the two yeah such a kind of a disappointing slow, slow opening and i i really do feel another reason why i think it's a really it's why it's the, the worst opening and why i have a little bit more ire towards it now this is just hearsay in my part okay the wii was incredibly popular yeah. when it came out right it was a mad selling console altogether but let's just say when it came out that around that christmas and a new Zelda game was out. I guarantee you, a lot of people who never played a Zelda game, a lot, I, I really do guarantee you, played Twilight Princess, yeah. got to that god-awful opening, and just went, why are we doing this? Let's play Wii Sports. Yep. And never went back to it. Yep. For- and if that game had a stronger, if it had a Breath of the Wild type opening, it have a stronger opening, I bet you got a lot more people into Zelda through it. I'm sure a lot of people did get into Zelda through it. I just think it definitely, it must have turned people off. Yeah, I think absolutely. I think there's probably a, a, a not insignificant number of people who, for them, that's what a Zelda game is. They played like <laughs> an hour of Twilight Princess. It bored the tits off them. And now when they see people talking about Tears of the Kingdom online, they're like, yeah, but Zelda games are boring. Why would you want to play one? Yeah, there's an awful fishing part at the beginning of Twilight Princess. Oh, you God, remember that? Yeah. It, it makes you catch a fish and stuff like that. Yeah, I think you're right. Isn't there a bit where you have and- to find a cat or something? That's a part of the fish thing. The, it's okay. all tied into yeah. <laughs> it's all tied into the same thing. Yeah. While like I know like it, you know, design changes and things are learned. So it's it's hard to say, like, why didn't they do a Breath of the Wild type opening? Well, you know, years later they did, you know, that's where that direction that series ended up going. It's just that I actually the whole, the whole first third of Twilight Princess is weirdly paced. Yeah. From start to finish, a lot of a lot of massive gaps between the dungeons and, and like a lot of story being put in there. A lot of set pieces inelegantly pushed in, but I do think the, yeah, the opening, I yeah. really hate the opening. I, when you said, let's do an episode on openings, I was like, I'm definitely going to shoulder Skyward Sword and Twilight Princess into this episode. Yeah, and I do think of the two, I think Twilight Princess is the better game with the worse opening. Yeah. Agreed. 100% agreed. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so we've um, covered a lot today. We've looked at a lot of games. Um, this was one last game that I wanted to mention before we go uh, yeah. is one that sort of fits into that same sort of narrative as Starfield and Death Stranding of the, the it gets good after X hours. Mm-hmm. And it's arguably one of my favorite games of all time. Ooh. And it's a tough recommend because it is about 10 hours before it gets there. I'm wondering, can you guess? 10 hours before it gets good and it's one of your favorite games of all time. It's not Resident Evil 4 anyway. No, that's nearly over in 10 hours. 
<laughs> uh, I don't know, Kev. I really don't. Persona 5. Oh, yes. Oh, how could we have forgotten Persona? Persona games the in general slow, are... The slowest openings in the world. Yeah. yeah. And I know <laughs> it's because if you're setting up for, uh, I suppose, the shorter Persona games are about 80 hours. Persona 5 <laughs> yeah. Royal is about 140 if you want to see everything on a playthrough. So in light of that, 10 hours is a drop in the, the sort of anime waifu bucket. But yeah, the, the, the Persona 5 is probably the game that I love the most that has the slowest start, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, totally, totally. It really takes its time about getting anywhere. And it's like... Well, what's annoying about it is that it, it has to adhere to its structure, which is fine. Like, So you play through calendar days in Persona games. That's yeah. absolutely fine. It's better than like, fine. Uh, it's really good. But anyway. It's really good. But I'm saying like, yeah, you are going day by day, day even at the opening. And it's establishing the main character. It's establishing uh, why, he, why he is where he is, why he's been transferred to Tokyo. He's establishing the new place he's going to live. You're esta- you are establishing things. Yeah. But Persona 5 will repeat information to you like five, six times in those opening hours. Yeah. It's the most inelegantly written, the most in- inelegantly paced thing story-wise I've ever seen. Like, I almost laugh at how much, how many times people tell the main character, like, you better not mess up or you'll get expelled. Yeah. Like, you're old school where you got expelled. Yeah. You're a troubled delinquent. We've got our eye on you. You were expelled. Yeah, and it's just repeating, repeating. Like, I've always said about the Persona games that if you remove them from the video game medium, they're not actually great stories. Yeah. What's amazing about them is that they're it's it's the interactive activity of the medium. It's like living in that world. It's like inhabiting it day by day. That's the real special thing, and I think that's the a perfect kind of way to kind of highlight that is that the, the opening hours of Persona Five. The writing is quite bad. I'd say almost even. <laughs> yeah, I think we spoke earlier about um, how some games, some of those those Zelda games we mentioned, were let down by sort of a lack of confidence in the opening. And I don't think that's what's going on here. I think Atlas are supremely confident in what they're doing. That's a good point. Yeah. And to the point they're like, we can do this. We can do this. And like people will play this game anyway. Yeah. Like at the, that game that's coming out next year that, I, that I, I'll never be able to remember the name of. I don't have Refantasio Memoria. Yeah, yeah. Some. Uh, yeah. It's called. Um, you can do yeah, this. Fuck it. I can't remember what it's called. Yeah. Yeah, uh, not Persona, whatever the fuck it's actually called. Yeah, I'm buying the shit out of that game, though. I'm buying the shit out of it. I'm going to get it day one. Yeah. I guarantee you that's going to start at a glacial pace as well. <laughs> it's going to it's going to move like continental drift for the first 10 hours. Uh, you've played Persona 4 now, haven't you? Yeah. You're barely doing anything but pressing X uh, to move dialogue for, uh, no exaggeration, three hours in that game for the, for the first three hours. And that's another one where I'm kind of like, it's one of my favorite games of all time, possibly in top 10. Yeah. Um, that's another one where I have to say to someone, oh, so, you know, it's basically a visual novel for the first few hours. Yeah. It doesn't even, at least Persona 5 tries to weave in some main mechanics in those opening hours. Like, let's, let's teach people how to battle. It kind of does it, yeah. you know, and you're doing, and you're learning systems. Persona 4 is just telling a story for the first three hours. Yeah. And it is three hours. Like, there might be one, one or two battles you do in it. I think you go into, like, the, when you finally get into a TV, you do a battle. But it is just like, let's establish like the main characters uh, through dialogue for three hours. Yeah. And I like that world and I like that story. So when I have replayed that game, I haven't minded, but it's definitely something I'd highlight to anyone who's like asking me if it's any good. Yeah, it definitely, it does make it a tougher sell than it should based on how good it ends up being. Yeah. 
three, which you haven't played actually. Oh, you have played a bit of it. That has a bit of a snap. It has a snappier opening for Persona. Yeah. It also has a snappier ending. It's the only one of the three that I've played that doesn't um, just kind of outstay its welcome in in its last few hours. Three three knows when to get in and knows when to get out. So it it doesn't have a a third act where all the stakes that you've been dealing with previously no longer matter. And now a team (laughs) of uh, presumptuous teenagers have to band together and kill God using the power of friendship. You kill some kind of god in it. It's definitely like that. Actually, Persona 3 does have an add-on game that's like an epilogue, which I've never played. So maybe you can yes. only say that by not having played the epilogue game. I, yeah. be asked, really. I wonder, is that going to be integrated into the remake? Yeah, I don't know. I forgot that's coming out too. There's a lot. Yeah. It's a shame that's coming out in February uh, next year because Final Fantasy VII Rebirth is coming out that month as well. And that is going to be the RPG I play. Yeah, yeah, no question. Good shout on Persona, though. I can't believe we almost finished this episode uh, talking about their amazingly slow starts. I can't believe the main character in Persona 5 was expelled. Yeah, but he's a delinquent, and if he doesn't watch out, it's going to happen again. <laughs> so, like, if we look at, at the Persona games, which we both love, we look at Death Stranding, which we love, we look at Starfield, which I've grown to like. Nice. <laughs> yeah. How do you feel in general about the it gets good after X hours thing? I don't like it. And I don't like recommending people games with like these slow openings, even if I love Death Stranding, even if I love Persona. And I just think, isn't there... I'm not... It's people, like I said earlier, developers, writers, whoever, they don't do this on purpose. Yeah. So maybe I'm just thinking, like, shouldn't this be a priority? Shouldn't like people really put thought into how to open something, you know? Yeah. like it's... Not have a slog. I, I, I do think when you're like... It, when you're in the middle of the project, like I bet you people were, uh, Bethesda, the guys are working on, uh, on um, Starfield were yeah. like, look, this is a, people know they're getting into this a hundred plus hour game. They're in for the ride. They know we're Bethesda. Yeah. They will go along for the ride with this slow opening. And we deserve to do a slow opening because we're master story- storytelling. So we can take our time and just like have this slow buildup. But it's, it seems to be one of the main things I'm hearing though. It seems to have blown up in their face because it's a huge negative. Yeah. And I mean, from the way Todd Howard has been speaking about it, he's like saying, you know, Starfield is a game that they're going to support for years, which kind of suggests that there is going to be, you know, a, a trickle or maybe a stream of DLC down the line or more content added to it. And maybe if it ends up being a game that's played for, you know, persona five lengths if people are playing playing 150 hours without hesitation in that game maybe the slow opening becomes more forgivable in light of that yeah but it just it still feels like a big ask Mm. so what what if anything have we concluded from this episode um i think that this episode got better as it went along i think we had a bit of a shaky start I think we've really, nice. really got into something now. So um, meta, yeah. I think what we what we've concluded, Liam, is that we know very little other than we know what we like, and we can't really explain yeah. that. And I hope people like what we like. No, I hope people like listening to what we like. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think that's as good a note as any to, <laughs> to wrap this up on. Um, I want to thank everyone for for tuning in and for sticking with us. Uh, I had a lot of fun recording this one. Um, if you want to help us out maybe recommend the podcast to a friend find someone inflicted upon them maybe make them a fan too Um, you can catch us on social media on uh, Instagram 
Twitter or whatever the hell it's called. I've, now. I've been dropping the ball with that recently, but we are ostensibly still um, making posts on social media. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. you find us at, at, at @hllpod on Instagram and on Twitter. Should um, I not air out my? Should I not air out my my grievances like that? Is it, should that be something that's not in the edit? I'm just like, oh, I just haven't been posting recently. You know. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> general malaise is content too so i I, I figure it stays in um perfect yeah so that is that's everything for this week thanks very much for tuning in guys that's a bye from me and bye from liam bye bye Bye. thank you so much